Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. I'll jump in and out of the New Testament a little bit, but those will be the best passages for you to camp on. And while you're turning there, which you just open your Bible and you turn left, it's an easy place to get to, Genesis 2. I just want to maybe underline or double underline maybe something that Chaz had said when he was kind of welcoming everybody. And that is when we do our spring fling here in a week or so, if you, if you are interested in baptism, what I'd love for you to do, and I don't know if this is possible for us to splash our text line up there, is it? Thank you. You're the best. So she's going to put a text line up there. And what I would love for you to do is just consider some of you, some of you have been considering whether or not baptism is for you, okay? And I know this because I bump into people occasionally. They were sprinkled as a child. Uh, maybe they, they've gone through a confirmation type of thing as a kid. They grew up in a particular denomination. But also, and this is true for some of you who have wondered if you have become saved over time, right? And I know that sounds weird because we think in our mind, if I became a Christian, if I wasn't one day and I am the next day, then I would know when that definitive moment was where that, that page was turned. Not so with a lot of people. With a lot of people, it's actually more of a gradual understanding of who God is, an ability to see the gospel clearly and respond to it. And then one day you just look around and you think to yourself, I think I might be a Christian, right? I don't know when that happened, but it's fairly recent. If that's you and you want to work through that as well, that, that line, that baptism line, or just the text line, if you just type the word baptism in there, I will call you. I will call you and I would love to have a conversation with you on whether baptism's even a good fit for you at this point. And this isn't just for you here. If you're watching online, we have a lot of people traveling still back into town. You can also do it during the week and I will still call you. We still get those text messages. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to happen on Sunday morning. But just want to maybe go the extra mile in helping some of you kind of walk through what baptism is and what it is not and whether it is a fit for your life, okay? So that's all I'm going to say about that. Genesis 2, Genesis 3, it's going to be helpful for us today. Um, If you've been coming to Legacy for a while, you know I am fascinated and intrigued by how society and culture changes. Um, It's what I went to grad school for to some degree. It's, you know, what I learned in seminary. But when it comes to societal change, work and how we handle work is at the very top of that list, which is interesting now because of what the pandemic has done to change the very shape of work. Right now, for instance, 30% of our workforce works remotely. 30%. Had I said that in 2015, it would have made no sense to you. (laughs) You would have thought, what does that mean? That they're not going to, a third of our workers aren't showing up to work? Exactly. They're They're flipping their laptop open, they're looking into a little tiny camera, and they're pretending to be engaged, right? Fast company. The magazine says that 13% of our current workforce is made up of Gen Z. But out of that 13%, which is Gen Z, 80% of them have never understood or felt a work office culture before, from before COVID. Think about that. And the ramifications for that as we move forward. But probably most interesting is this new phenomenon of quiet quitting as a rejection of what we've known as hustle culture. And just to maybe put a one-line definition on each of those, hustle culture is just going above and beyond. It's for the hungry, the ambitious, to kind of step past the boundaries of what is required or asked to do a little bit more, to reach, to stretch, to go up another level, or hope for promotions, just to hustle. But quiet quitting being a rejection of that, of going right up 
to what is asked of us and then stopping cold. That's it. You're asking for 40 hours, you will get 39 hours in 55 minutes and that is all you will get. It's a rejection of hustle culture. So even seeing how that has moved, and I'm pretty sure that's not just a COVID thing, by the way. It's just that the younger generations, and when I say younger, remember I'm Gen X, right? Gen Z, in the back half of the millennial generation, they value some things more than money. And that's experiences, quality of life, things like that. So it's not a COVID thing, just this move towards quiet quitting. I think that just probably sped it up. But the reality of all of these trends is that we were all going to handle work according to how we see God and ourselves. We're going to handle work according to how we see time, how we view money, purpose, meaning. So the big question we're going to let the Bible answer for us today is what is the Christian disciple supposed to think about work? Work as we steward things. I mean, is it something that we can complain about? Are we allowed to do that? (laughs) Are we allowed to just mail it in at the end of the week because we're just really tired? Are we allowed to constantly look for an upgrade? Is that okay? What about quiet quitting? Or what about when your job just feels meaningless? You loathe it. You don't want to clock in. You don't want to show up. This is important for us because the bulk of our waking hours are spent laboring, all right? We could just say that big word, laboring. We're fixing things, designing things, we're curating. There's a million variations of how we all tend our individual gardens. But how you see those work hours of labor is defined by your theology. Our theology basically drives how we clock in and clock out. Now, last week, we looked at maybe a 30,000-foot view of the concept of stewardship, and we stayed high on purpose. We didn't really apply it in any specific direction, but we did look at how stewardship is different from an autonomy that is self-governed, where we just kind of pull ourselves away from God and we become sovereigns ourselves. What we saw last week is that disciples grow fastest when they manage what belongs to God for God's glory. Okay, very basic stuff last week, but this actually applies, and if we were to tighten the screws a little bit, it applies to how we work, the labor that's put in front of us. And I'm, I'm going to be careful here because I know not everybody has a traditional job. We have stay-at-home moms, students, those who are in the gig economy. If that's you, I don't want you to detach from this today, okay? It's going to be valuable for you, even if you don't, quote-unquote, work for the man, Even if your work feels small, maybe even insignificant. I think this is important to take from Tim Keller. He wrote a book on this. By the way, if you were to look for a book on the theology of work, every good endeavor is probably the best one. Out of 100 pastors, 99 of them would probably point you to that one work. But Tim Keller says this. He says, in Genesis, we see God as a gardener. And in the New Testament, we see him as a carpenter. No task is too small a vessel to hold the immense dignity of work given by God. I love that. Big or small, seemingly meaningless or deeply meaningful, labor isn't something that we do just to live. It's something that we find ourselves living to do. Again, it takes up the bulk of our time. Therefore, our work could be a a piece of dynamic worship between you and the Lord, a way that we offer our lives to God. And in fact, if you were to flip this, conversely, when work is just what we do to live, it's just the thing that we do so that we can move one step forward in this thing called life, if we use it as a vehicle for self-glory or self-realization or something like that, it will corrode your soul. 
It's, it's, a, it's a brutal taskmaster. That's what work becomes. But our labor is meant to be more of a mission, something we employ to serve others and order the chaos around us. And that's going to be the argument the Bible makes, right? So it's just because it echoes God's labor and his work. So if you look at Genesis, look at Genesis 2, and we're just going to read the first three verses. And this is going to be after, so I'm fast-forwarding across all the days of God doing what? Making, creating, speaking things, pulling things, ordering chaos. He's building. But here it says in the first verse of chapter 2, Thus the heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. There's a million sermons that could come from just that right there. But what I want you to see is he is now finishing. He's tying a bow on it. He's closing the deal on creation. And then he goes on and puts man in place to do the same thing that he was doing, to order, create, build. Not the same kind of creation, of course, but we're moving and we're operating in the same shape of God. This is what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. So you and I, we form culture. We fill the earth. We subdue it. We execute dominion over everything. I want you to consider that when you find chaos in the warehouse or your inbox, you're continuing the pattern of God's dominion on earth. You're continuing that. When you, when you shape an office culture, when you create things, when you take ideas and synthesize them into something that is, is actionable, you're doing the exact same thing. You're taking creation beyond where you found it. So what I would love to do just today is to maybe pull down some bad theology that we've picked up regarding work and maybe reassemble it. And the first, if we were to look at the platform of our theology with work, plank number one is that work is a brilliant gift and God wills us to work. It's a brilliant gift. Why is it brilliant? Because he thought of it. <laughs> That's why. And then he gave it to us. He wills us to work. Now a world far from Jesus doesn't agree with this. Work is now what? Something to be escaped, something to be eluded, to be quietly quit, to be avoided, and even to be abused. And by the way, it's probably worth mentioning that hyperproductivity, that's not a biblical ideal any more than apathy is. It's not. It's abuse in a different direction. I think sometimes, even in the church, even I can struggle with this, we can associate hustle culture with a Christian life. That's not, that's not the case, though. It's not a gospel-centered way of looking at work at all. But I think it's important, before we even get to what happened to work, to see that when Adam was originally God's deputy over all of creation, there was no sin. This is so hard for us to consider, isn't it? Work without sin. Because Adam's work, being work, struggles with our definition of work because the only way we understand work the only way we associate any meaning to that word is with the tinge and the touch of sin on it. What does it even look like to work? Was he tired at the end of the day? It was never exasperated. I mean, imagine a labor environment of no office politics, no half-truths, no broken deadlines, no unrealistic deadlines, no envy, 
No cringy Christmas parties, no power plays, no crashing software, no fatigue or red tape, no bad news, no layoffs. Adam was God's deputy in a perfect creation. I mean, it stretches my deepest imagination to even think of what what that must have been like. And yet we're called to be vice regents in the same shape that Adam was, to wisely steward the work that is before us. And I think it's probably important just to be accurate right here. We're not creating something out of nothing as God did. He would create in such a way, the Latin word is ex nihilo, from nothing or out of nothing. That's the way God would create. But what you and I do is we fashion out of the raw materials that are supplied to us a new cultural good, something that supplies mankind in some way. So we take eggs and we turn them into omelets. That's a way that we create things, right? We discover ore. Think about this. We discover ore in the earth, build machines to pull the ore out, put that in different machines that we built, and it turns it into metal. And then we take that metal and put it in different machines and we make musical instruments. And then those musical instruments, if you're really good, will make music. And then what do we do? We capture that music into a file format. And then we put it onto a software platform that you can listen to with earbuds in your ears. We're creators. We're creators. But we fashion that right out of the earth. We'll take petroleum right out of the earth and make AstroTurf out of it. Dashboards on our cars. We'll get unleaded fuel in our cars. We are creators. We're deputized to create from what we have been given. We're called to order the chaos that surrounds us. Now, certainly when it comes to your work, Some work seems more important than others, right? I mean, when you look at the wide receiver and you compare their work to maybe a a heart surgeon in the third world, it seems like, man, just one's just so much more important than others. I don't want you to get caught up into that because whatever we do, we have the opportunity to glorify God who is sovereign, owning all. There is dignity in stewarding what God has given us. Deep dignity, really. No matter what your labor looks like, you can steward it and worship. This is important for stay-at-home moms, by the way. For those who are in places where they labor and it feels forgotten, seemingly unimportant, insignificant, your labor matters. You're imaging God himself. There's great dignity in what you do. And I talked to a lot of stay-at-home moms over the years, and the overall vibe you can pick up is that there is going to be a struggle of feeling left in the dust of insignificance. A lot of these women could run their own companies, but then they're just in this forgotten realm of a home. Let me just say that's not the case. Don't listen to culture. Don't take your cues from Instagram when you're building a theology of what a mom at home does. If you want to work and you don't want to stay at home, fine. That's great. That's not what I'm after right now. I'm just saying it doesn't make you more significant or more impressive. There's great dignity in doing something like staying at home, right? Feel free to email me on that if you want more clarity on that, because I know that that's a little bit of a third rail. What I want you to see in this, what I hope that you see, is that work is so much more than just clocking in. (laughs) It's so much more than just the thing that you do to get one step further. Work is God's idea. It's a brilliant idea. But sin broke it into pieces. Sin. It came in and shattered it into a million pieces and now our gardens have weeds and pests and drought and all kinds of things that make our life hard. In fact, let's look at Genesis 3, 
verse 17. That's just one page over. And it says this. And to Adam, he said, he meaning God, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and had eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, here's the second plank in our platform. Work, work is going to be hard because of thorns and thistles, and then we die. That's the second line. That's the second piece of the new theology that we probably need to assemble. Thorns and thistles are just the native product of land when it has gone ungroomed. That's all it is. Right? And listen, your inbox can, when ungroomed, hell have its thorns and thistles. A closet at your house before you go through spring cleaning has thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles are hard to remove. They're difficult. I told this story probably oh, a, long, a long, long time ago, but in West Texas, where I grew up, we had something far worse than thorns and thistles. We had cactus needles. Right? And that's a party you don't want to go to, friends. But I remember as a trail runner, as a new trail runner, back in the day, I would occasionally just brush one. I didn't even know it was there. I'd just brush it, and you'd end up with these needles. Some of them are so imperceptibly small, you, you, just, you, you almost hurt without even seeing them. But over time, you realize, I, I think I bumped into a cactus, right? So this is the deal. Since I want you to get all your money's worth this morning, I want to serve you well and teach you how to get rid of a cactus needle. Are we all on board with that? All right. Bump into a cactus, the first thing you do, step away from the cactus, right? No, just joking. That's, you've already done that. Step number one, if, if it's a light needle, maybe it's a hair-like one, you could get Elmer's glue, just like what you would use as an elementary school student, and you could put it on your skin and then smooth it out and then let it dry. If you're a dude in here, you probably did that in kindergarten or first grade. Draw upon those old skills, right? Put it all over there, and then when it dries, you can, you can act like a kindergartner again and pretend it's your skin, but you're going to pull it off, and by God's grace, it pulls that needle out, right? Because if it doesn't, you go to step two, which is duct tape, okay? You're going to want to put duct tape over the same area, and that's when you start asking yourself some serious questions about how you got to where you're at in life. But when you pull it off, Oftentimes, this will get them. You can get them off with the duct tape. However, if that does not work, you go to tweezers, tweezers. And this is where you thank God for the details of his creation, right? As you're looking with perfect lighting on this area for these tiny little hair-like needles and you pull them out. If that doesn't work, and this is crazy, you buff them flat. You just buff them flat, leave them in your skin, Creation will take over eventually. They'll just work their way out, okay? That's how you deal with needles. Obviously, none of these are fun. But I would bet some of you would rather tackle a cactus than deal with some of the thorns and thistles in your own respective gardens, right? I would bet. Adam's sin spoiled your day at the cubicle. Adam's sin ruined your Zoom meeting forever. It has made homeschooling overwhelming. It has made midterms stressful. It takes professional athletes and it brings injury. It will find teachers and bring migraines. I've heard the phrase over the years, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I get it, I guess. I mean, I know it's trying to be said, but it, does, it doesn't make any sense, really. Here's the thing, I love my gig. I got a great job. This is the job I've always wanted. 
right? I love you. I love this city. I love building things. I love starting churches. I love making disciples. I love this. I have the perfect job. It's got some thorns and thistles, though, significant ones. You can love what you labor at. The fall, however, is comprehensive in its reach. (laughs) No one in here has a job without thorns and thistles. But even in this, we have God's grace. That's what I love about Genesis 3. There's a glimpse. There's a glimpse. You see the phrase, eating the plants of the field, eating bread. You see those. There's an anticipation of being pushed out of the garden in this. Mankind would battle creation. We'd be toiling farmers and ranchers and city builders. But in the midst of the pain, mankind, by God's grace, will be able to pull provision out of the ground for sustenance, for survival. Here's the third plank of our platform when it comes to work. Work isn't evil, it's just not going to be very easy, yet God is not one to discontinue his grace. Right? It's not evil. It's just not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. In fact, if we were to take all of these planks and build a solid platform, this is what I would say would be a good theology of work. Our hard labor as deputized stewards is a brilliant gift but we'll have thorns and thistles. So we labor in his grace for our good and his glory until he returns to remove all thorns and thistles forever. That's a good theology of work. Some of you need to swap this one out for the one that you have. Okay? Why? Because we're work abusers. We're work abusers. We usually abuse work in one of two directions. Usually. One is that we require work to glorify us. This would fall more into... Hustle camp, club hustle, right? I'm in there. I'm a board member of club hustle. I understand what it's like to require it to give me something that Jesus has already given me. But then there's another one, and that's requiring the absence of work to glorify us. That would probably be more close to quiet quitting. By the way, punchline is the answer is not somewhere in between the two. The answer is not a compromise between the two, not between hustling and laying up. But we can't abuse work when we want it to glorify us. If you're in camp hustle with me, the thought is as if we need to work hard because this work will give us things. It will complete us to some degree. And the usual suspects is it might give us an identity. It might make us feel secure. It might, might make us feel a sense of belonging, I guess. It's the genesis of overworking, though. And I've talked to a lot of other in my same camp of camp hustle about what overworking is. Overworking is not working more than 40 hours. We've talked about this before. It's just trying to get something behind the work that God has already given you. Because, I mean, some of us have jobs where you'll work 30 hours one week and you'll work 80 the next week. Why? Because that's what work asks for. That's what's required, right? Anyone ever talk to a CPA during tax time? Of course you haven't, because you can't get them on the phone, right? Because they live in the office. They're working bajillion hours a week, man. So it's not just working a lot of hours. You can overwork, working 20 hours, if you're trying to squeeze something out of that gig to give you that God has already given you, right? Listen, best way to distinguish whether you're doing this or not is just to ask yourself, why are you working so hard? Why? I mean... And be honest with yourself. Are you looking to be seen? Get ahead? Find purpose? Build safety? Stack more grain in the silos? Retire as early as possible so you never have to work again? If you're a member of Club Hustle, 
You might be attempting to replace God with your job. That's a sin, friend. That's a sin. That requires repentance. Because what we're saying in our hearts is, Jesus, you're simply not enough. I need this job to complete me. I need it to give me something. It's basic gospel refusal, basic gospel denial. By the way, students can do this, and so can stay-at-home moms. Anyone's capable of hustling like this. When we need the GPA to represent who we are, it tells us. It tells the world who we are. When we need our little versions of us, our kids, to develop in a certain way that the world looks at us and says, look at you. Look at you. It brings us meaning. Here's the tricky thing about club hustle. There's nothing wrong with trophies. There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with reaching, plaques on the wall. Nothing wrong with it. Promotions, nothing wrong with long hours, nothing wrong with lots of money, nothing. Failure is when we use those things to replace Jesus. Failure is when we feel like we're in a living hell if any of those things are taken away from us. Listen, work is a gift, it's not a savior. Work is a gift, it's not a savior. I've said this in the past, how I've been fascinated at the evolution of the obituary. I did a funeral here recently and read through the obituary. I don't do a lot of funerals, at least not at this age. But what's interesting, if you look at the history of obituaries, pre-1950, they would be written in such a way to represent who the person was by their characteristics. Jack was a great guy. He was always kind to the kids in the neighborhood. Jack was a fixture. He was uh, in, in his family. He, it would talk about the kind of person that Jack was, the kind of person that you would bump into at a barbecue. After 1950, obituaries started to grow into what they did for a living, right? Oh, Jack, he was VP of marketing for so-and-so for 19 years until he was accelerated into the position of president of marketing at a different company. And then it just becomes on and on and on of look at me, look what I do. That's who I am. I mean, I want you to consider if you were to write your own obituary, would you be tempted to insert something that is just basically saying, look at my trophy, Look at my trophy. Here it is, it's shiny. I did this, this is me. It's tempting. See, that we could break work, we can abuse it. But we can also abuse work by neglecting it. And this is the lie that says, I avoid work because there's nothing in it for me. It's too hard to get something out of it that I am satisfied with. Exodus 20 says this in verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Okay, what, what underworking does is it avoids wise stewardship, right? And by the way, it's not just laziness alone that fuels quiet quitting. If you ever read an article on quiet quitting, that's not just laziness. That's actually something a little bit more difficult. Dorothy Sayers, who was a writer back in the 50s, she would call it acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A, which is just another word for apathy or laziness. And she said this about acedia. Acedia is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. That's sad. This is where a job is just what you do. Nothing more than a curse. Escaping it becomes the goal. Right? That's also work abuse. And I think acedia has never been easier in human history than it is right now. Average age of a gamer in the United States of America is 39. That's the mean, not the median. 39. 39. There are more gamers over the age of 50 than there are under 18. 
True. Half women, half men, approximately. By the way, don't email me on this, okay? You could game to the glory of God. I get it, right? I get it, you know? But gaming is fair game for critique, if we can just say that. Because the reality of gaming is when I was younger, under the age of 18, I was trying to knock out Mike Tyson on a console about this size in front of a TV that weighed as much as a child, you know, just trying to do the best I can. But now it has moved from console to mobile device. This is what's fascinating. 80% of Generation Z and Gen Alpha, which is the name of the newest generation, those born after 2010, 80% game on mobile devices. We carry that giant TV and that awkward console with us now. Escape is just a click away. Again, nothing wrong with Mario Kart. If you could do it to the glory of God, then crush candy like a champ, right? But at least admit that there is a pull towards apathy and that pull is accelerating. It's accelerating. In our games, when we play a game, the thorns and thistles have no consequences. You can hit restart and you can start over. Or you could use some code you found online and you could have 100 lives, right? The bullets don't hurt, the winds come easy, easier than real life anyway. I mean, if it weren't so, it wouldn't be much of an escape, would it? No. You see, society has impressively built technological saviors to medicate us. It just needs our energy. It just needs our time to pour into it. The pressure gradient to underwork has never been this heavy in human history. Never. Listen, I'm less concerned about this room today when it comes to this is I will be this room in 10 to 15 years. When it comes to gaming as an escape, we're gonna have to disciple the next generation to use gaming to the glory of God. It's a different sermon altogether, but we can redeem it. We could redeem it. I don't think we have to reject it. I think it might even have a place in a lot of lives just to enjoy it to the glory of God like you could enjoy anything to the glory of God, but I think it has to be redeemed in our culture, right? What I want you to see here is underworking It's just like overworking and that it's a sin. It's just trust God wrongly in different directions. Underworkers fail to trust as well. It's just just different. Underworkers, they don't believe that God is good enough in the midst of the thorns and thistles, so they've just got to hunt good down somewhere, right? How do you glorify God in a job that seems meaningless and loathsome? How do you do that, though? I mean, we can see how we abuse it with overwork, and we can see how we abuse it with underwork, but some of us have jobs that we just hate. We've been stuck in them for a long time. And getting up, getting dressed for it, you wonder how long you can do it. You're a little scared, to be honest with you. The answer is not in between the two extremes of over and underworking. It's a work ethic that is entirely different because it is shaped by a gospel perspective. Now, what I mean by that, I don't, this does not mean preaching the gospel the entire time you're on the clock. That's not what it means to be a gospel-framed employee or employer. It sees work. This is a view that sees work differently because it sees it through a gospel lens. It sees it through the finished work of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. That's how, it's informed by the freedom that it brings to you and me. Gospel comprehension just refocuses the lens, changes the way you see the staff meeting, Changes the way you see evaluations and long meetings and difficult water cooler moments. Changes it. And this is why. There is no work like salvation work. No work 
like salvation work. For generations after the garden, mankind would set out on the hard work of being clean before God. Perfect obedience, perfect sacrifices, just to be clean before God. All until Jesus, the perfect worker, would come and declare from the cross where the perfect work was done, it is finished. Now, a lot of things were finished in that moment. But one thing that was definitely finished is our work to be clean before him. All sacrifices would end. He was our last sacrifice and our last priest. What what about the diligent accomplishment of all the perfect laws? He did it all for us. We're free to walk in them, but he did it all for us. Now those of us who are in Jesus are a Sabbath people, a people of rest. Why are we able to rest? Because he did all the work for us. One worked hard when our work would never be good enough. And what this does for you and me is it puts a frame around how we work. It brings meaning and purpose to our work. We no longer need work here to be a semi-Jesus to us. We no longer need to abuse it by overdoing it or by underdoing it so that we don't have a hellish lifestyle here. In what feels like a horrible job, the simple way to serve God best is to labor as well as it can be done. Does that sound too simple? To do it just as good as it can be done, not just to pay the bills or to build your image, but to image God and improve the chaos around you. To leave things better than you found it. To to take the raw materials and create something for the good of mankind and for the glory of God. To look beyond your interests to the benefit of others and to be thankful and to be thankful in it, even in your cruddy job, the one that nobody even sees you, the one that you're not paid near enough for, to be thankful. Listen, it's not by any mistake that God has, has you in that moment. Can you believe, does your theology make space for the fact that God has you there at that moment for that job? And maybe you don't know why, but you can still trust him in it. This is what it says in Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, that's talking about more than employment right there, but it's not talking about less than it. Listen, I don't know why God has you where he has you. I don't know, but you're not wasting your time. Even if no one notices, even if you feel like it would make no difference to the world at large, God is glorified. Whatever it is that you're laboring at, labor thankfully. Be the best stay-at-home mom you can. Be the best artist you can. The best employee, the best student, the best employer. Be the best you can for his glory. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do you see that there's missional implications for this? As we work like this in a landscape of people that are hopelessly enslaved to abusing their work, can you see how this would have ripples, could pop on their radar? First Thessalonians 4, Paul speaks right at it. He says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly in front of who? Before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Again, a verse that says quite a bit, but one of the things it says is that we are amidst, we are, we are surrounded by, we are embedded in a people that work differently than we do for different reasons that we do. You don't think they see that? You don't think they see how you handle yourself? You don't think they see your attitude? You don't think they see how excellently you do things, you craft things, the raw material? You don't, they see it. They see it. Ecclesiastes 2, 
Solomon says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, if you were to go back and read a little bit earlier in that same chapter, it's more of work is vain. I'm just going to bust my hump and then I'm going to hand it off to somebody else, you know. What he's doing, and this is what the bulk of Ecclesiastes is, is talking about how meaningless life is without Jesus, without God. But here it is. He's pivoting here, and there's nothing better than just finding some enjoyment and working hard in the toil that God has put before you. You see, the, the, the people around you, they see your thorns and thistles, and they see it extracting something different from you. And what the world sees as meaningless, without purpose, to be escaped, they see you stewarded to the glory of God in some way of deep, authentic worship. Christians, friends, listen, we preach the gospel with our mouth. Make no, make no mistake about that. But we show it with our work. We show it with how we work, with how we labor. Are you not where you want to be? It's part of God's providential plan. You don't have perspective on it now, but that's the thing about trust. You're asked to trust God when you lack the perspective of what that moment really means. It won't be for years later that you look back and you say, I get it now. I get it now. I could see, I could see why God would maneuver us through that one path instead of this. I could see it now. I, it's good that you could see it then. Trust is what was needed when it was happening in real time. You lack perspective. That's fine. That's why trust is trust. That's why it's valuable. As you can see, there's a lot of room for disciples to repent when we're faced with passages like Galatians 3 and 1 Thessalonians and Ecclesiastes. When we read these passages, there's so much of my heart as someone who likes to hustle. There's, there's so much for me to go, ah, I didn't mean to, Lord. I, I wasn't purposely trying to be complete with a job. <laughs> it just happened. But I'm going to repent for it. I'm going to turn. I'm going to change. There's room for you to do that as well. Whether your club is Cedia or club hustle, we all are slanted towards abusing work in some direction. And listen, if you're here or if you're watching online right now and you're struggling with who the Lord is or whether you're a Christian, I might have said a couple things in here that might have been foreign concepts, flew right by you. That's fine. I have my number of services where I understood about half of what the guy up on the stage was talking about. But I will say this, there is a Sabbath rest where work stops. And I don't mean laying bricks and making cars work stops. I want you to know that there's a Sabbath rest where your hopes and your toil and your rule following and your legalism, you can't even follow your own rules, right? All of that stops because one has worked for you. You can rest. But your job, friend, when has that ever saved you? Have you noticed how your work has always failed to save you? Your job has always failed to complete you. You're not one promotion away. You're not one lateral move away. One, one corner office away from being saved. But you are perfect for Jesus. You are perfect for Jesus and he's perfect for you. May this be a day where you submit to a real savior, not a fake savior. May this be the day where you call out, with a dependent and needy heart and say, God, I can't go forward without you. Let this be that day. Let this be that day. 
Because friends, listen, one day all thorns and thistles will be burned and forgotten. All of them. But until then, we point to a better place and a better boss as we work our various gardens to his glory as good stewards. Amen?